Hello and welcome to Mother Mother, a podcast from the mom friends you need right now, because this shit is hard. I'm your host, Emily Ferris, a writer and married mom of two in Kansas City, Missouri. While Mother Mother is technically a parenting podcast, this isn't a podcast about kids. It's a podcast all about the experience of being a mother. You can learn more about the podcast and my guests at mothermotherpodcast.com and join the conversation anytime in the Mother Mother Podcast Facebook group where the password is tired. My guest today is Dr. Aparna Iyer, a perinatal psychiatrist in Dallas, Texas. I invited her here today because in her practice, she prioritizes perinatal psychiatry, which means she works to assist women and birthing people with their mental and emotional health before, during, and after pregnancy. And I can't wait to get to all of that. But first, Aparna, thank you so much for coming on Mother Mother. Third time is a charm with scheduling. My fault. (laughs) But I know this is going to be such a valuable episode for so many listeners. So I am so grateful that you're here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Now, before we get into maternal mental health, or speaking of maternal mental health, really, tell me a little bit about your life in Dallas and, and your lockdown. Like, Paint a little picture for us. Well, we we moved to Dallas in 2016. It has been fabulous. I really started my practice here right around the time that we moved down. Wait, where did you move from? So I moved from upstate New York, and that's where I did my residency training. I stayed on there as faculty. But when I moved down here to Dallas, there was an opportunity to sort of you know, be reborn, I guess, as a psychiatrist in the way that I wanted to practice. Um, and I used the information I had gotten about myself and about the field and really learned a lot about what I wanted to do when I was practicing in upstate New York. So when I moved down here to Dallas, I decided to start a solo practice and really geared my practice a lot towards women being a perinatal psychiatrist. There's some other facets of my practice as well. And I think my two big focus, my focuses, foci, I don't know, my two areas of focus, foci, are are really working with women uh, across their reproductive lifespan, their mental and emotional health, but also working with physicians. Somehow, I've also found this little cool niche where I work with a lot of female physicians who are mothers, which is really doubly cool. So I started that practice in 2016, kind of later in 2016, And it has just been such an awesome, rewarding experience. What happened was four years later, we had this lockdown. And in March, I really looked at a lot of my patients and my mothers. And I said, you know what? It's totally fine. Just like everybody else. We just kind of hunker down, just kind of go into lockdown for a couple of weeks, maybe a month. And then this will (laughs) all be past us. And we can move on our merry ways. Well, it turns out that we are still having that conversation, except we're shifting into the focus of how do we mother through a pandemic that really seems like more of a long-term sort of thing. How do we manage our anxieties around our health and the health of our families? And how do we keep our children safe and the anxiety around that? When you have a pandemic that just seems to be waxing and waning, and it just seems like things come out of left field and we have to sort of roll with it a lot easier said than done, especially when you're dealing with maternal anxieties. Yeah. Anxiety has been the running theme through this entire podcast for me because I am I had undiagnosed postpartum anxiety with my first. And then with my second, my husband and I, we figured it out. We figured out I had ADHD. We figured out there was undiagnosed postpartum anxiety. And going into my second birth, we were like, we're going to figure out how I how I'm going to not have postpartum anxiety. So we made all these plans, how I wasn't going to obsess over breastfeeding, and we were we were going to prioritize my sleep, and I was going to have days out by myself. Well, my second was born February 17th, 2020. So <laughs> everything oh, got fucked. Wow. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So I just traded postpartum anxiety for medical anxiety. Right. And that has not gone away. You, there's no pill for that. Right. I don't think. Is there a pill for that? <laughs> There's, there is no pill for that. I'm working on it. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> I will let you know if I come up with one. Thank you. I will. You know what? Put me in the trial. <laughs> I'll be your guinea pig. Um, there is no pill for that. And I think one of the hardest things is that sometimes with moms who have that anxiety, that postpartum anxiety, 
And a lot of it is medical for a lot of moms. They look at their child and their child is coughing funny or, you know, acting in a way that seems funny to them. And maybe a lot of them are first time moms. We can look at them and say, hey, you know, your pediatrician is happy with how the child is growing and you, your child seems to be developing beautifully. So let's look at what parts of these, this may be reality-based versus maybe rooted in an anxiety disorder. But that entire discourse has to change when we're talking about COVID. COVID's scary for all of us. And there's so many unknowns. So suddenly the discourse around medical anxiety in the era of a pandemic for moms who are so worried about their well-being and the well-being of their children has to look totally different. How do we manage that anxiety, knowing that a lot of it is reality-based? I'm going to go on a tangent here because I still want to hear about your lockdown. But you said the word or the term anxiety disorder. And I've had such a hard time with this because I feel like there's a big murky swamp in between like being a mother and having some anxieties because anxiety is is what helps us survive and keep our child alive. I, I have to feed the baby. I have to bathe the baby. The baby has to sleep. I, like there, there are all these things and like being a first-time mom is anxiety-inducing. I don't know anyone who has wasn't a little bit anxious after they had their first baby. Mm-hmm. So where is the line, if there is one, or maybe it is that big murky swamp I talked about, between like being anxious because having a brand new tiny human is scary and having a brand new tiny human in a pandemic is scary. But even before the pandemic, like where is the line between that natural anxiety and like you now have an anxiety or disorder or you now actually have postpartum anxiety? Emily, I have to tell you, I have experienced this time and time again and experienced this very question time and time again with my patients But I've experienced this personally as well with my first one. And this is shocking considering what I do for a living. With my first one, I found myself being very emotional, not being able to sleep, having no energy, having a total lack of motivation to do all kinds of things that I used to do. I'm into art. I'm into exercise. I'm into all kinds of like, you know, healthy eating and trying different things. And I didn't want to do any of it. But I mean, I've got to tell you what mom, when her kid is like, a month or two months old, isn't sleeping through the night. It's like, yes, I'm going to go out and run that marathon. No one's going to do that. Or like, I'm going to cook myself a dinner. No, I'm going to stick my hand in a bag of cookies is what I'm going to do. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so I think that what happened was I found myself in a haze. This is how I started really with, with really focusing my practice on perinatal psychiatry was because it felt so hard to be able to distinguish what's normal, what's a normal emotional experience postpartum versus postpartum depression or, or postpartum anxiety. One thing I will tell you is it's exactly that anxiety by itself is not bad. Anxiety is very adaptive to a, to a point. Once it crosses over that threshold, it's no longer adaptive. When I say adaptive, it can be adaptive in a number of ways. It can make us more effective. It can make us more vigilant. It is a survival, something that we use that is essential for our survival you think about our caveman ancestors, the moms who were vigilant were the ones who at the very end of the day, their, their children were more protected and more likely to survive, as opposed to maybe a mom who's less anxious, less vigilant, who kind of let their child roam out by themselves. Maybe that child was less likely to survive. We don't have, you know, saber-toothed tigers or anything anymore. I was just thinking about my baby being eaten by a saber-toothed tiger outside of the cave. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Whatever the modern day equivalents of that are, we're hardwired to have some anxiety postpartum. The way I think about it is that our brains as moms, especially postpartum, tend to overshoot and miss the mark. And I think that we tend to be anxious. Um, and sometimes that anxious can even look like an obsessive type of recurrent sort of obsessive type thinking, it is so common. But to your point, when do we say, hey, this is normal versus a disordered sort of anxiety? And I think simply put, it's when it impacts your functioning, when it's no longer adaptive, when you can look at this and say, hey, I'm trying to keep my kids safe. But at the at the end of the day, all I'm doing is obsessing about X, Y, or Z. And I don't see how that translates into keeping my baby safe. Yeah. Still kind of a murky swamp for me looking back on my experiences. Yeah, absolutely. And the pandemic just like makes the swamp bigger because there are such real, there are real threats. There Mm -hmm. are real dangers, especially for those of us who have really young kids who can't be vaccinated yet, but maybe hopefully soon. I keep seeing headlines that maybe soon the, uh, six-month to five-year vaccine will be approved. 
But yeah, it's it's such a weird thing because I I don't know if medication would have helped it, but I didn't know at the time what I was experiencing. I just thought like I have a new baby. I'm I'm kind of a type A person. Like I'm just mm-hmm. being really type A. There are certain things that I was anxious about that I think were part of that like vigilance and survival, like safe sleep and car seats. And I think it's good to be <laughs> vigilant and anxious about those things, even though a lot of people think that I'm crazy. I don't want a pill that would make me like not anxious about car seat safety. I think that what is challenging about that is that people worry that pills or any form of mental health treatment will somehow, again, overshoot in the other direction and make you numb or make you not care about things that you really should be caring about. And at the end of the day, it's really to drop the disorder piece of things. Is it a perfect science? Sometimes not, but that's the beauty of an ongoing relationship with your prescriber, with your therapist, is that you can continually check in to see what's working and what's not. And multiple adjustments can be made to kind of tailor that treatment plan to that person. And to your point, the way I look at this is sort of like when you're in the eye of the storm, I don't know if you've ever had the unique experience of being in the middle of a hurricane. I have, that's a long story. Um, but when you're in the middle of the storm, it's hard to be able to kind of see it for what it is. But when you're on the outside, it's a lot easier to see things more objectively. So for example, I can't tell you how many times a woman will say, well, I'm, I'm just anxious because I want what's best for my child. This is not abnormal anxiety, or this is not depression. I'm just tired. But their partners or their family members might have some other level of concern. Well, at that point that when they come to me or another mental health professional, they are then able to be evaluated so that I, as a third party, can look at them and say, you know, there's something about this that doesn't feel like it is in a healthy territory or maybe parts of this that don't feel reality-based and let's kind of explore those pieces. Like maybe had I gone and gotten anxiety medication, I still would have checked the car seat strap. Mm -hmm. But at night, I wouldn't have had like visions of my child in a car accident. (laughs) Maybe maybe that's the line right there. Okay, okay. Now now I'm I'm getting it. Okay. Well, back to the question I asked you originally. We got got off on a tangent. I do that a lot. What was your lockdown like? How many kids do you have? I have three, and they're all very little. So at that point, they were six, four, and two. Wow. Now, did you guys go into a strict lockdown and you started seeing your patients virtually and they were all home? Yes, correct. All of that is true. They were all home. So I was homeschooling and also seeing patients. And my patient schedule was pretty much full time. It was from a professional standpoint, it was really challenging because my goal as a psychiatrist is to really be there to support my people in the way that they need. But the problem is that during the pandemic, everybody had multiple needs. They needed a lot of support because it was just so challenging in so many different ways. I think as humans, many of us don't do well with change. Most maybe don't do well with change and like locking people down. They have no ability to maybe go outside to cope or lean on their social supports the way they, they, they used to. For mothers in particular, it was so incredibly isolating. You had a lot of moms who had that COVID anxiety when they were pregnant or postpartum, or many of them had to go into the hospital in a way that felt very isolating. Their partners maybe could or couldn't join or can only join for part of the process, and they were terrified. So I really wanted to be there for people, which ended up looking like me working around the clock, but then also kind of fitting my kids in wherever I could to help with their homeschooling. It was really challenging and pushed me, I think, to my limits. But I felt like, you know, I gave everything I did for everything I could for about 110 at at about 110% for most of the pandemic. The amazing thing is that I have wonderful patients and most of them are moms. And they just got it. They knew that my kids were going to wander into the room and I'd have to kind of, you know, redirect my kids. And they understood that that just came with the territory. Other than working a lot, which is really stressful when you have kids at home all the time, were you feeling your own anxiety about the pandemic or being a medical professional? Were you pretty relaxed about it? So I think that I myself and the medical community in the beginning, we were kind of in the same boat as most of the population and in that initially nobody had any idea about this pandemic. We didn't know 
which way was up. We didn't know how long it was going to last. All we knew was that it was important to take the lockdown seriously. But as we got more and more information, it didn't make any of us feel any better in terms yeah, of still <laughs> you know, feeling like, oh, now we can relax. We couldn't relax. And at one point, my husband, who is a frontline physician, had to move out of our house because we didn't want him to expose myself or the kids, um, but especially my parents who were living with us as well. We didn't want him to expose any of us. So he moved out of the house for a while and we didn't know what that meant. So if he got sick, would he be by himself without any support? It was very, very challenging for all of us. Some of our friends were able to maintain pods with each other, but we really went into very strict lockdown because I just didn't feel like we had enough information. Uh, We stayed that way for about a year in March of 2021. I think that my kids, like many kids that I've seen, really started to get impacted in terms of their mental health, which then spilled over into the health of the family. So we ended up putting them back in school which has been wonderful. Now that all three are back in school, it's been really, really great. And I think that the stuff that we, that I preach in terms of relying on our supports and friendships and connections being protective for our mental health, I've always known it to be true, but I've never known it to be as true as I did in in those moments where we saw it during the pandemic when it was first taken away from us. I feel like when you become a parent, it takes a village makes sense because you realize how much you do need other people. And then when we all went into lockdown, like there was no village. Yes. You mentioned your your parents or your in-laws lived with you, your parents? My parents, uh-huh. My mother-in-law li- uh, works at a hospital. She works in the lab at a hospital. And I remember early on, because we, we separated from them. We said, you know, we're going to, we're obviously we're all social distancing. Like it's my husband, me, my two sons. That was it. My mother-in-law has talked about retirement in the future sense. And I remember trying to talk. I was like, just retire and move in with us. During this lockdown, just live, like, come, just live with us, hang out with the kids. You'll be fine. It'll be great. But we didn't, like, we weren't even hanging out with them. And they were our main source of support for our kids. And, like, they, they've they always been so helpful for us. And then it was, like, no school, no grandparents, no nothing. PTSD from those first few months, probably. I've heard it described as a collective grief that people are experiencing post-2020. And I would agree with that. In 2021, 2022, I haven't felt, I felt like it's ebbed and flowed, but I I do feel like people are really just now starting to deal with some of the emotional fallout from 2020, which is extraordinary. People really dealing with a lot of loss. The pandemic is front and center in every single appointment that I have with everybody because it's impacted people that deeply. And mothers in particular, mothers, children, it's just incredible. I know that we, my family and I, were very lucky because so far, knock on wood, like we haven't gotten COVID that we know of and we're all healthy and we're all safe. But I, at one point, realized that grief was, in addition to anxiety and stress, like grief was something I was feeling because I was so looking forward to having a baby and not feeling that anxiety. Like I was so excited to just like enjoy a baby without anxiety. And all of these hopes that I had for like experiencing my baby, like having a baby out in the world and not being anxious were ruined. And I know it's like such a privileged problem to have. Like so many people had it so much worse, but I I have grieved that loss of just enjoying because I had my tubes tied with my second and like this was my last baby. And I was, I really thought that I was going to have this like really blissful second newborn phase. You know, Emily, I think that even if we were going to zoom out and talk about that, just from a big picture perspective as humans, we have these hopes, right, for ourselves and what we envision. And I think sometimes life just, you know, takes a sharp turn to the right. And there is often a sort of grief, irrespective of what that hope looked like. There is a sort of grief that you can experience when that's taken away from you. And it was no, not through any fault of your own. Yeah, It's interesting that you say that because when you take that and sort of transpose that mentality onto other aspects of motherhood, for example, I will tell you, there's so many women who will say, I am going to have a totally natural delivery. Come heck or high water, I'm going to have a totally natural delivery. This is my birth plan. This is exactly what's going to happen. And I don't know, the universe, your baby, your body, whatever, your uterus has other plans. 
and maybe you end up going into labor early. Maybe you end up having to have a C-section. Maybe you ultimately choose that you're not going to have a med-free delivery. You're going to choose to use pain meds. Whatever it is, it's there is often a sort of grief that comes with that. Um, I also see that around breastfeeding. Maybe your story or something different, like some women will say, will have this viewpoint of breastfeeding, breast being best, and they just absolutely, again, come heck or high water, I'm going to breastfeed and this is what it's going to look like. And then something happens, baby has other plans, your breasts have other plans, right? Whatever it is, and they can't, won't, whatever it is. And there's often a huge level of grief that comes with that. I did see a lot of that too in the pandemic. Oh, I bet. I know that contributed to my postpartum anxiety with the first one because when when I was pregnant, people would be like, are you going to breastfeed? And I'd be like, I'm going to try. And if it doesn't work, I'll use formula and that's fine. And then, and I've talked about it a lot on here, so I won't go into too much detail, but I ended up having an emergency C-section, which was fine because my birth plan was get the baby out as safely as possible with as little pain as possible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so after like 30 hours of labor and four hours of pushing, when the doctor was like, you need a C-section, and my doula was like, yeah, I think you need a C-section. We're like, okay, get that baby out. And I, was, I wasn't sad about the C-section there, but I definitely found my, and I think it was part of the postpartum anxiety, though, that I found myself being like obsessed with breastfeeding, like, a, like obsessing over the fact that I had to breastfeed. It was a spiral. It often is. I had a similar experience in that regard. You have three kids. Mm-hmm. Did your anxiety go down with each one? So it's so interesting that you ask that. I will tell you that every pregnancy, every postpartum phase, every baby is so different. And I know everyone says that. What what does that mean? Right? Like, but then I had them and I was like, oh, that's such BS. Like, what what does that mean? All babies are the same. No, they're not the same. They're born totally different. I'm sure you saw that with your two. The Mm -hmm. minute they're born, I was like, oh, who's this? This this child is totally different. But with my First, the circumstances were different. So I, I don't know that I would say my anxiety was more or less, but I would say that my anxieties just looked different. And in some ways they were better. I think that, you know, statistically, if you have postpartum, whatever mental health thing that you had with the first one, you have a higher likelihood of having it with subsequent pregnancies and postpartum timeframes. But I think that the one thing that is protective is exactly what you said that you're going into it the second time or third time around with your eyes wide open. And I found that to be very protective because I knew I I learned more about just me, not just motherhood, but me in motherhood and understanding what I need and what does it mean for me to be supported as opposed to say the next person might need to be supported a different way. It's, it is interesting that my first one, I wanted to breastfeed so badly Again, I was very similarly, I was obsessed with it. It felt like the one thing I could do to bond with my child. It felt sometimes like the only thing I could do to bond with him in those moments that were pretty dark for me. So I had him and he was just so perfect. But this kid was stubborn as heck and he wouldn't breastfeed. He just just would not do it. Would not. Refused. And I tried everything. And so he was 100% formula fed. And um, my second one was 100% breastfed. And my third one was about half and half. I had a very short maternity leave with her and that kind of cut into it. But I will tell you that my first one, a lot of people are worried that if I don't breastfeed, is this child not going to develop properly? Is this child not going to be bonded to me? And it doesn't mean any of those things. It doesn't mean any of those things. And also, like, who is telling you this shit? Like, I want to know who has the nerve to tell you that because that's a pretty shitty thing to say to a mom. Emily, you know, you know, as well as I do that everybody and their mother has an opinion about pregnancy and postpartum and breastfeeding. And no matter what you're doing, you're doing it wrong. Right? Totally. And my family, my friend groups, like they were no exception. Everybody and their mother had an opinion. And in those moments where you're extremely vulnerable and like commercials make you cry. <laughs> right, exactly. And I'm like, okay, well, all I can, my takeaway here is that I'm totally screwing everything up. <laughs> yeah. But you know, my first one is extremely bonded to me. He's, you know, he's a smart kid, is extremely bonded to me and has done really well socially adjusted, like he's developed perfectly. And so I really don't look at him and think, oh my goodness, despite what my initial concerns were, I don't really look at him and think, oh, wow, I really screwed up here. In fact, I think we did something right. And despite the fact that, you know, he was entirely formula fed. 
So I like to use that as an example for my patients when they can't breastfeed and they think that it's over. And it's really not. It's just the beginning. I actually have a theory. So my second was the one who was born three weeks before lockdown. I nursed him. And then when I sleep trained at four months, I introduced a formula bottle before bed. And I don't, I don't like nursing. I just don't. I think because it caused me so much stress the first time around. But I introduced a formula bottle at bedtime. And then I started gradually introducing more formula bottles because I was like, this, everything is so stressful. Like he likes the formula. My breast milk isn't very fatty. Like let's give him some, some formula. And then after we reintegrated with my in-laws when he was nine months old, he went over there for his first night away and he came back and he rejected the boob. And I was like, this is kind of awesome. And my theory, so I breastfed my first until he was 15 months old when I weaned him. I was just like, I'm done. I'm done with this. And my theory is that with my second, he was actually so connected and so bonded to me because we were in lockdown. Like he wasn't going to daycare. He didn't have babysitters. Like he was so connected and so bonded that he just didn't need the boob for connection. He, oh. he was getting that connection from me elsewhere. And so for him, it was it was just like sustenance. And he figured out like, oh, I like the bottle better than the boob. It's my yeah. theory. My What's well, my armchair psychology? Is that what it's called? <laughs> but you know what, though? It's it's more than just a random theory. You're his mom. Your intuition yeah. is worth a million bucks. So yeah. I would be willing to bet that that has something to do with it. What are moms struggling with the most right now from a clinical perspective? I will tell you that I think postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, but I will tell you that most of all, what I'm seeing a lot of right now is postpartum OCD. OCD. So this is something that I think is under-recognized historically or has been under-recognized historically. And I think that the pandemic and some of the medical anxieties around COVID have really either brought it to light or revved it up. Maybe when it was considered sort of, it would have been otherwise subclinical for moms. It would have been there. It would have been a quiet suffering that maybe wouldn't have been brought up to the surface, but now it's revved it up and there's no denying it. I cannot tell you that of all of my new patients, I would say some sort of postpartum OCD manifests in most of them. And how is that manifesting? Like, is it, I know with my first, I was like logging every single poop and pee and fart and breastfeeding and pumping. And I have called it anxiety, but would you consider that OCD? So I think that there's, again, it it can be murky. And I think you have to look at it from situation to situation. But what I will hear a lot from moms is that they get a certain thought often an anxiety-driven, fear-based thought in their mind. And then it just starts to spiral. And a lot of these moms are just so smart and capable and resourceful. And they're just the just do it kind of moms. If you want something, you just kind of make it happen. But they can't stop where they've been powerful before they feel debilitated by this. So it's not a sense of empowerment that they get from, oh, I have this sort of anxiety. Let me just use that, harness that and make something happen. It's the other way around. They have this anxiety and they crumble under the weight of it. I think you just described me because I'm a person who just like gets shit done and I will do anything. And I feel like in my own life, I have no fear. And I was not an anxious person until I became a mother. And then I obsessed over all the scary things that could happen. Clearly I'm not alone. Okay. We are going to take a quick break before we go. I have a very important question for you. What are you wearing? Well, we're on virtual, right? So I am wearing pants. I do feel this need to tell you. (laughs) Okay. But if you're not, I wouldn't judge you. (laughs) Okay. So I I think you're talking about my like cool headset, right? I'm talking about everything. This is is something I ask every guest because (laughs) as moms right now, we're still in a pandemic. Some of us are reentering the world, but we're still in a pandemic. Like we're, I only like started wearing a bra again a few months ago, so... Well, I I will tell you that during the pandemic, it was like the the back of the closet stuff had a moment to shine. So what I'm wearing right now is all my back of the closet stuff. I have my like athleta LGBT pride pants on and I've got my like, I I cannot even tell you where I got this from or how long ago. It might've been a decade. It might've been more, (laughs) but I'm also wearing my like six-year-old's Hello Kitty headset. It works. I love it. Yep. Uh, Very appropriate. I feel like that's the equivalent of me finding socks and fruit snacks in my purse. 
Yes. Like toddler socks and fruit snacks. Well, the other day in my purse, I had all my makeup as I was going to teach at a conference and I had all my makeup. I had like all my essentials, my snack and everything. And my child said, mommy, I left you a surprise in your purse. And so on the drive over there, I looked at my purse and she had taken everything out and left four purple Legos. Wait, she took everything out of your purse? She took everything out, but she left me four purple Legos. It's love. Oh my God. But had you at least had a chance to put on some makeup before you left the house? No, no. Pretty much how you're seeing me now is how I showed up. <laughs> well, I think you look great. You have beautiful well, thank skin. thank you. <laughs> thank you. For me, that would not... I'm very pale and I have like blonde eyelashes and blonde eyebrows. <laughs> that would not go well for me. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. All right, we're back. My guest is Dr. Aparna Iyer. She is a psychiatrist in Dallas who focuses on maternal mental health. So Aparna, let's talk about moms and mental health. And when I say mental health, I really mean mental health meds. I'll tell you my story, um, but I know that lots of moms experience this with various mental health diagnoses. So I have ADHD, I got diagnosed after my first son was born. He was maybe two. And I, when I started my ADHD meds, I'm on Vyvanse, it was life-changing for me. And I'd always heard because old school medical advice that like you cannot be on stimulant medication when you're pregnant or nursing. And so I knew that when I got pregnant, I would have to stop my meds. And my psychiatrist, who's a very lovely older man. He's like probably in his 50s. I really like him, but he was like, he knew that I was off the pill and was going to have a second baby. He's like, yeah, when you get pregnant, obviously you'll have to stop your medication. So I found that I was pregnant and I stopped my medication cold turkey. And it was fucking awful because I was also in the first trimester, which is Mm -hmm. basically like three months of a hangover. Mm -hmm. And then add to that taking away the medication that makes me function better. (laughs) And it was awful. So when I went to see my OB, who I love, she's like, how are you doing? I was like, physically, I'm okay, other than the nausea and the exhaustion. But mentally, I'm a mess because I quit my ADHD meds when I found that I was pregnant. She's like, you don't have to do that. I was like, what? She's like, no, what what medication do you take? I said, Vyvanse. She's like, no, no. The science has changed. You can go back on. Go back on a low dose. I was like, really? She's like, yes. If it's going to make your life better, absolutely go back on. Everything will be fine. And I said, will you write me a letter for my psychiatrist? And she said, absolutely. So she wrote me a letter and I went back on a low dose. It was about half the dose of what I'd been taking, but like I felt like a human again and I was able to function and do my work. And I think I would have been a disaster throughout my pregnancy had I not been on my meds and I stayed on it through the nine months of breastfeeding with my second. And I think I would have had a very different experience, much worse if I'd been off my meds. And I am so grateful that my doctor, my OB, was like up to date on the science of this because clearly there are so many doctors who aren't who just think you have to go off of your mental health meds when you get pregnant. And I see this come up in Facebook mom groups. I see it at least once a week where a mom says, oh, I'm off my Lexapro. I'm off my Wellbutrin. I'm off something. I'm really struggling right now. I don't know about how it interferes with fertility drugs, but I see lots of women who go off their meds when they're trying to conceive or when they find out they're pregnant and they really struggle. Some who then go to their doctor and say, please put me back on. And their doctor says, nope, not while you're nursing, not while you're pregnant. But that's not what the science says anymore, right? So to your point, Emily, the science suggests that we do what helps to support functionality and health. What is really frustrating for me as a psychiatrist is that I think sometimes people forget that we are prescribing medications for out of medical necessity. Nobody blinks an eyelash when your cardiologist puts you on a cardioprotective medication or, you know, your endocrinologist puts you on something to support your like thyroid or your hormone levels. But for whatever reason, people, maybe because we don't have objective parameters for a lot of our medications to kind of measure their efficacy. You know, we don't have blood tests or something to say, oh, look, Emily, you're like within the healthy range of whatever it is for your ADHD or whatever. It's harder 
for doctors to be able to look at that with the lack of objective data and say, oh, this is medically necessary and this is how we can prove it. But it's very real to you. You have to live with that on a day-to-day basis. So when we look at our medical medications, I'm sorry, our psychiatric medications, and we kind of determine what are the meds that we want to stay on versus not, I will tell you that generally speaking, our rule of thumb is that much of what you're taking right now, pre-pregnancy, if you found a regimen that keeps you healthy and safe, we generally just maintain it during the pregnancy. A lot of times we will, I think it's beneficial for the mom and the pregnancy and the baby to look at each medication critically and then kind of look at the data that's out there. Some of the data might be a little bit limited, but at the end of the day, it is a hard win to find the regimen of medications and the dosages that work for you. We might have to decrease the dosages. We might have to take the medications a little bit differently or switch to a different formulation. But generally speaking, we don't like to cold turkey medications that keep you functional and healthy. Is there even like a real risk from these medications? Like, is there a real physical risk to the fetus from, and maybe you can't say for all of them, but like, is there even really a risk from taking medication? Think about it this way. There, anything that you put in your mouth, anything at all, at any point, runs the risk of having a side effect right? Bag of chips. Doesn't matter what it is. We're talking about medications. That's true too. When you think about your doctor talking to you, say putting pregnancy aside, just you as a person without a pregnancy or breastfeeding and and to take into consideration, they, the doctor has to tell you about some of the most common risks that you might encounter or side effects that you might encounter on this medication. The same is true when you're thinking about a developing fetus, a baby, or when you're breastfeeding and exposing the baby to that medication. So the baby is going to get a much smaller amount of whatever medication than you are. Say you're taking 100 milligrams of whatever medication, the baby's not going to get 100 milligrams. The baby will get some smaller percentage of that. But the baby is also smaller and is developing. So you have to take all of that into consideration. So when you say, is there a risk? Yes. But the thing is that there's a huge gray zone. So a lot of times there is the concern about certain things in terms of risks, but at the same time, there's a huge gray zone as in the risks are very small. We can mitigate the risk by maybe taking certain like um, supplements or approaching it in certain ways or changing the way that we prescribe the medication. I think that there are a couple of things to take into consideration The data that we have is fairly limited. When I'm looking at a woman and we're looking at her medications and saying, what should we stay on? What should we not stay on? What should we change in anticipation of a pregnancy? There are a few things that we need to take into account. We need to look at the data. So we pour through literally the literature. What are the papers that have been written? What do do they say in terms of statistical risk? But we also know that there's some real limitations because some of the best studies that we have in general are when you've had randomized control trials. We can't experiment on pregnant women. That's not ethical. So you do the best you can and know that that data is somewhat limited. But I do that with the woman. And then we contrast that and compare that to the my anecdotal data based off the women I've seen in my practice and, and how that looks. Generally speaking, the women who start off their pregnancies on the same regimen of medications, and again, we might make some slight changes and tweaks here and there, but we do what we need to do to keep them medically safe, including keeping their mental health safe. Yeah. To date, I mean, I've been doing this for about a decade now, and I've only had healthy babies. Only healthy babies. Yeah. I like to tell people, and I know mine is, again, anecdotal, but I had not been diagnosed with ADHD when my first was born. So I was not on meds when I was pregnant with him or nursing. He was a horrible fucking sleeper. He like this baby never napped. He would not nap. It was it was like a, a daily struggle to get this baby to nap. My second, I was on ADHD meds throughout my pregnancy and nursing. He is an amazing sleeper. He sleeps like 14 hours a night. When I sleep trained him, was taking three naps a day in the crib. Like he's an amazing sleeper. And he, I guess, was like getting some stimulants from me. So it's kind of opposite of what someone might say. Well, you know, your stimulants will make it so your baby can't sleep or like coffee. 
people say it about coffee. Like I drink so much coffee. <laughs> I probably drink more coffee again with my second than I did with my first and he's a better sleeper. And again, I know it's anecdotal evidence. It is, but there is something to be said, Emily, about making sure that the mom is in a place of good mental health. Because again, when we're talking about medications during pregnancy, and I'm specifically talking about mental health medications, I think that one of the things that we have to remember is that you have to take a really well-balanced look at all of the data to make a decision and you weigh out the risks and benefits. So there's risk to being on meds or not being on meds. You also have to look at the mom's mental health and say, where's the risk there? That there's a real risk to her having untreated or undertreated mental health symptoms and that at the end of the day, that's not safe for baby either. When mom feels well, she's really setting the baby up for a healthier sort of development from an emotional and intellectual and mental health standpoint. Obviously, like being off of your meds and feeling stressed and anxious or depressed is going to affect the baby. And I imagine also the bonding experience with the baby, which will probably affect how the baby eats and sleeps and attaches and functions. 100%. So I know you said that it's hard to do these randomized studies because you can't study on pregnant women. Is there something that mothers, pregnant women, women who are trying to, to conceive can point to and show a reluctant doctor and say like, look, the science says this, where is that science? And why don't all doctors know about it? So I think that everybody on the planet would love to have either you as a mom or, you know, as a doctor taking care of a mom, you would love for your patient to have as natural a pregnancy as possible when possible. Right. But you medicate when it's medically necessary. Um, so I think that many people will kind of err on the side of, Hey, let's just try to do this as med free or with as few meds as possible. And so I think that tends to be the default, but the tides are cer certainly turning here. Um, and in terms of the data, one of the things that I will tell people is just don't, don't randomly Google it because, you know, there's all kinds of stuff on the internet. Dr. Google. <laughs> exactly. You don't want to just kind of go and read whatever and random people's accounts because we don't know who those people are. We don't know what their experiences are. And the other thing I do also mention to people is that the people who had good, positive, healthy experiences are probably in the majority and they're out there living their lives. They're not online, you know, expressing their concerns or criticisms. Where you really want to look are on more unbiased, medically driven, evidence-based websites. So the two that I often will kind of look at if I want to refresh my own data bank or if I want to point my patients in the right direction are the MassGen website. It's womensmentalhealth.org. And then the other one is Postpartum Support International. They both have a wealth of data. Now, if I were a mom dealing with depression and took something from that website to my doctor who is reluctant to give me meds, how's that going to go for me? The hope is that you and your doctor can have an ongoing discourse around, you know, doing that balance right? Trying to determine, hey, we don't want to just prescribe any medication, but we also have to look critically at hey, if this medication is medically necessary, does that kind of bump it up on the priority list of something that we need to start taking or continue taking? That said, there are doctors, I'm speaking specifically about psychiatrists, there are psychiatrists who specialize in perinatal psychiatry, such as myself, but there are many of us across the nation. And so there are some helplines, like say through Postpartum Support International, where if your doctor is concerned, that doctor can then reach out to that helpline to get more information from one of the doctors who volunteers with Postpartum Support International to get, to get what information that is out there in terms of, is this medication safe and under what circumstances should you continue prescribing it? Now, don't doctors have to take continuing education throughout their career? Yes. Is, and is this the kind of stuff that just isn't part of that? 
I think that I'm seeing it showing up more and more. Again, I can only speak really more towards my field, but in psychiatry, I'm seeing it showing up more and more. Perinatal psychiatry is an emerging field. And even general psychiatrists who don't identify as perinatal are basically getting exposed to more data year by year. But I will say that our colleagues, our endocrinology colleagues, our OBGYN colleagues are also becoming more and more exposed because they are getting more data around this as well. So I will tell you from the inception of my career as a perinatal psychiatrist to now, there just seems to be much more of an openness. And of course, it's not with everyone, but I'm speaking just in terms of trends. I'm finding that more and more people in the medical community are aware that these medications are absolutely necessary. Um, There's still more work to be done because I think that there's a general nervousness around prescribing during pregnancy. Yeah. I I find it interesting that it was my psychiatrist who was like, well, you're going to go, you're going to go off your meds when you get pregnant. Mm -hmm. And my OB was like, no, you can go back on your meds. It's Mm -hmm. fine. When he's like, his job is prescribing the mental health meds. Like Mm -hmm. that is his, that is his world. Like he understands that they are necessary for my day-to-day functioning. And the OB, you think, is more concerned with the health of the fetus. But part of this, I think, I mean, not, I don't think age is necessarily has anything to do with it, but she is younger, but she's a mom. She has three daughters. Yeah. And I think, like you said, you went into this specialty. I assume you chose this specialty after having a child. Is that correct? I think it became official. Let's put it that way. After having yeah. my my first child, because you can have something where it feels very much like an intellectual and academic endeavor, but then you have it that first time and suddenly it becomes personal. And my big thing was this sure as heck is not going to happen to anyone else on my watch who's in my care. I just can't have that. Yeah. Do you think that the medical community at large still kind of views birthing people as vessels for a baby? I think it's changing. I think that the community, not just medical, but the community at large has had such a concern about do what's right for the baby, do what's right for the baby as though the mother really doesn't exist outside of, you know, optimizing her care so she could do what's right for the baby. I think that within the medical community as well, that's changing because I think we have an increasing awareness of the mother being her own person and that we need to support her as well. We still have work to do in that regard. Emily, I'm going to tell you also that I think we as moms have internalized that message that somehow maybe we matter, we don't matter or we matter less and the baby is front and center, and we can't share that stage. I, I can't tell you how many times I will look at moms and say, your baby's fine. I'm not worried about the baby. The baby's doing great. I'm worried about you. And that does not stick. But when I say, hey, what do you think about doing this? Not only because it pushes you into a space of good health, but it's going to help you bond with the baby. It's going to help you protect the baby. It's going to help push your baby into a developmental space that might be better for him or her. Suddenly they're listening. The minute you say, this is what's best for the baby, the moms will be listening. I would love to see that discourse change so that I could say, this is what I think is right for you. Of course, what's, I I do maintain that what's right for the, what's good for the gander is good for the goose. Um, So when we look at family units or the diets between mom and baby, but I do think that sometimes, you know, whatever community it is, whether it's a medical community, community at large, or even the internalized messages we as moms have received is really that as moms, I don't know that we, we really matter. That's the concern that I get. And so I think that when I really focus on the mom as an individual, that conversation just doesn't hold as much weight as I think it should. I feel bad saying this out loud now that my children are like outside of my body. But when I was pregnant, even kind of later in my pregnancy, I didn't really feel like I was, I felt like I was pregnant. I didn't really feel like I was bonding with a baby. 
And I'm sure some of that, I, I'd had a miscarriage around 11 weeks before I got pregnant with my first son. And um, I think part of that was probably like self-preservation, emotional for myself, right? But I remember saying to my husband, if I get into a car accident or something happens, like, choose me, like, save me. If you have to choose one of us, save me. And I, I maybe I sound like a monster for saying that. But then when I was, again, when I was pregnant with my second, I said that to my husband again, because I was like, Teddy, my oldest, like he needs a mom. Like if something happens, and you, like if, if something happens, choose me. Now, like once I met my children and they were out of me, like obviously like I would throw myself in front of a bus or a terrorist or anything for my children, I would, I would die for my children. But I hadn't bonded yet with my children, the fetus. And I, I remember both times feeling like a monster, but saying like, if you have to choose, choose me. I, I was very protective of my pregnancies and I did the things that I thought that I should do. But I guess I didn't feel like my only job in the world was to bring the baby into the world. Do I sound like a psychopath? Not at all. I was going to say, you matter, right? Yeah. You, your, your babies matter, whether they're inside of you or outside of you, they matter. But you matter too. It's not a mutually exclusive thing. And I mean, the, the data really shows that unless there is an extenuating circumstance, like you were saying, you know, if you have to choose me or the baby, generally speaking, it's not about either one of you. And we have to kind of look at that in a really big picture way. Like if I'm looking at a pregnant woman, I have to think of her as a dyad. It's not just her. It's not just the baby, not just one of them matters. Like they matter as a dyad. And so when the mom takes a step forward, she's also helping the baby take a step forward. And I think that when we talk to women like that, I think they, that really sticks. You know, the idea that sometimes I worry that that's the only thing that sticks. Oh, if I take a step forward, then my baby takes a step forward. But you know, Sometimes it's really just about like, hey, let's just focus on what's right for you at the moment. And of course, you being the mom, that like gets amplified, that wellness, that goodness gets amplified. What would you say to a mom who is struggling with her mental health right now? I mean, other than getting professional mental health care, what would you tell a mom? What advice would you give her? What is something she, we, all of us can do? for our mental health right now? Because I think even if we don't have, for even moms who don't have a diagnosis or really don't have a mental health disorder, I think we are all struggling with our mental health right now. What can we do? I think that the single most powerful thing that I would say to any mom, and this is just, again, anecdotally, but I have hundreds, maybe even by now thousands of moms that have benefited from this is saying you're doing an amazing job. You are doing so much better than you think that you're doing. We all as moms, again, have internalized those messages from the society or from social media or from our own moms or mother-in-laws or whomever people they are where we are screwing it up. We're, we're screwing up our children royally by doing whatever it is we're doing, breastfeeding when we should be formula feeding, formula feeding when we should be breastfeeding, keeping our kids at home, putting them in school, whatever it is, having just one, having two, having 10, whatever it is, we've totally screwed it up. We've made all the wrong choices. And I think we internalize that and we carry around this mom guilt that somehow we have screwed it up royally in some irreversible way and you just haven't. I think the other thing I will tell you is that being an adult psychiatrist my other privilege is that I see a lot of these kids of moms who at one point had, you know, made mistakes. Of course, we all have, right? As moms, we've all made mistakes or moms who have had mental health difficulties. And I will tell you, it's not black and white. You either do an amazing job and your children are incredible and successful and have a great relationship with you, or you mess up or you struggle with medical or mental health. And therefore, your children will struggle lifelong. It's not as simple as that. I will say that you keep trying. You do what's right by you, what's right by your family. And your children, you know, the love and commitment that you give to your children is the single most protective thing. 
Everything else is really just peripheral stuff. Those children often will just grow up and say, you know, my mom struggled, but we made it through and they are forgiving and resilient and they do fine. What would you say to a mom who might be reluctant to get a diagnosis or even just go see a mental health professional? Like I I think with my first, if somebody would have said to me, Emily, you are exhibiting the signs of postpartum anxiety and OCD. I think you should go see a doctor. I think I probably would have been open to that, but I was so obsessed with like tracking everything and my anxieties that it didn't even cross my mind to seek help. But if if someone is struggling, but they are they are reluctant, what would you say to them? So the first thing I want to tell you is that diagnoses sometimes can help us gear treatment and tailor treatment accurately and adequately. But generally speaking, diagnoses, I think, are perpetuated by a need to, you know, put something on the paperwork, maybe justify something from an insurance standpoint. I think we should look at diagnoses as sort of not a label or end all be all to things. At the end of the day, you're much more complex than like, say, depression, anxiety, ADHD. You're much more complex than that. And it's important that each mother knows that. And each doctor, like that, that they know that their doctor has a more complex understanding of them than just that one word. At the end of the day, you also don't need a diagnosis or a pre-existing mental health condition to seek some additional support. Just remembering that there are other cultures in the world where mental health support, and sometimes that comes by way of maybe a doula. Maybe that comes by way of extended family members or religious members, um, religious elders and leadership. That's sort of built into the culture. And maybe in our American culture, it is just not that way. That maybe we reconceptualize seeking mental health support as tapping into our resources as part of our village. That we don't need a diagnosis. You may or may not need a medication. But at the end of the day, Having someone, an objective third party, where you can go in, you can get that support in a judgment-free, safe zone is so powerful. And it might not mean that you need meds. It might not mean that you need to be in therapy forever. It might be time-limited. But it could just be such a huge thing for you and your family and really do what I like to call level, like help to level you up in terms of get you to that next place so you can be your best best self as you kind of move forward and bond with your baby and kind of like tap into the goodness of those first few years. I just said like, I think I would have been open to getting a diagnosis. I think one thing that would have made me nervous would be going on a medication because I would be worried that if I went on an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medication, that I wouldn't be able to not take it anymore. Is it something that you can do temporarily to like get you through a certain period? Or is that kind of like abusing the system? No, absolutely. You can take what you need while it's medically necessary. If it's not medically necessary anymore, there's really no reason for you to continue it. And when I say that, I want to be very clear that starting and stopping should be done under physician supervision because None of the meds that we prescribe are meant to kind of be taken here or there or just sort of stopped suddenly because of, you know, risk of relapsing or withdrawal symptoms. But at the same time, I can't tell you how many women get to a place where we look at them and say, hey, maybe you don't need this anymore. Maybe we can start the taper and see how you do without it. And many of them do fine. That's good. That's good to know. I probably could have benefited from a little anti-anxiety medication back in the day. Frankly, I probably could have too. Yeah. (laughs) One thing I was going to ask you, and you kind of covered it, was what can moms who might live in a rural area or who can't find a doctor near them who is open to medical or chemical treatments when they're pregnant or breastfeeding, what can they do? And tell me those websites again, and I'll make sure to put them in the show notes and link them. So the first one is womensmentalhealth.org. And the second one is Postpartum Support International. Great. I will link those in the show notes. Thank you so much. I'm going to tell you the one positive thing that has come out of COVID, out of this pandemic, is that it has normalized telemedicine, which means some of the best medical treatment 
nationwide is now accessible to everybody anywhere. There are, of course, some uh, licensure restrictions. So, for example, I am a doctor practicing in Texas, and I only have a license in Texas. I cannot tell you how many hundreds of women have reached out to me from across the nation and have said, would you be willing to treat me? And unfortunately, I can't. But the good news is that even though I can't, there is a doctor somewhere in their state who does exactly what I do and could potentially be a great fit. And maybe they're in a more urbanized area, but they're able to see that person through telemedicine. I think another good thing COVID has done, and I hate to talk kindly of COVID in any way, but it has kind of removed some of the stigma from mental health issues. Only because it's causing everyone to have a fucking mental health issue. 100%. Oh my goodness, 100%. And talking about feelings and talking about feelings of isolation, it's so normalized because we all feel it. It's not weird because you feel it, I feel it, everybody feels it. And so we talk about it now and it's just sort of the norm for people to have all these emotions arising out of this pandemic. And we're still having them. Aparna, is there anything else you want to say about moms and mental health or postpartum mental health before we go? If there was one takeaway that I'm hoping people can get from this, it's really that I'm trying to demystify what mental health treatment looks like or can do for a woman during pregnancy and postpartum. Just like what you were saying. And what I've been saying from our own personal experiences, I can't tell you how many women have come in and said, man, if I had just given myself the permission to get the support I needed, things would have been so different. I don't remember the first three months of my son's life. It was a haze. It was like just black. And so many women can say the same thing. All I can remember from that are the photos, like through the photos, I can look through them and kind of relate to those moments, but I don't have my own memories. But that changed with my other two when I finally gave myself the permission to get the support I needed. And so for me personally, and also just professionally looking at women and saying, wow, look how beautifully you did during this pregnancy where you gave yourself the permission to get the mental health treatment. It may be meds, it may be just therapy, it may be a combination, whatever it was that was medically necessary. All of a sudden, we've leveled up and your life and your health looks so much different. When you give yourself that permission, Mm -hmm. life can get better for everybody, for the mom, for the baby. For the family. Moms out there, you have permission to seek mental health treatment and talk to your doctor about mental health meds. Because if you need them, you need them. And you'll be okay and your baby will be okay. All right, Aparna, where can people find you on social media if they want to follow you? So I am on Instagram. It's Aparna IRMD. And I am also on Facebook. It's the same name. Um, My professional page is on there. Um, And then I have my own website, just kind of doing cool things again around maternal mental health and just normalizing certain experiences that so many of us have. And also just talking about some cool new things that are coming down the road for me and for my practice to kind of keep people connected to mental health, whether it's through social media. I'm also going to be publishing a book soon. It's going to be a coloring book on mindful meditation during pregnancy. Now, is that available yet for (laughs) pre-order? Not yet. It will be. I'll let you know when it is. Well, I will link to everything else in the show notes so that people can follow you. And um, I think even just following someone like you on social media can help mothers feel better about treating mental health issues? So with my practice, my practice is very small, so I can't always take on new patients at the rate that I wish that I could. But I've developed a social media page so that a lot of the stuff I talk about is accessible to people no matter where you are, whether or not you're a patient. Thank you so, so much for doing what you do and sharing it on social media. And thank you so much for coming on Mother Mother. This has been so great. Thank you. Thank you. I wish that I could go back to being in the thick of my postpartum anxiety haze with my first and listen to this conversation. If you're in that now, I hope this was valuable to you. And if you're out of it or whenever in it, I hope you still got something from this. I know I did. I am going to drop those websites that Aparna mentioned in the show notes and on the website. But one more time, it's womensmentalhealth.org. 
and then Postpartum Support International, and the URL for that is postpartum.net. If you want to continue this conversation, which is a very important one, come on over to the Mother Mother Podcast Facebook group where the password is tired. And you can always find more information about the show and my guests at mothermotherpodcast.com, where you can also leave me a voicemail. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to Mother Mother. If you're loving the show, please, please, please tell your mom friends, either on social media or in real life. And please also rate and review Mother Mother on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. The more people listen, the more time I can spend creating great episodes like this for you. I'll be back next week with a new episode and a new guest. So go ahead and hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And there are a few more episodes to come this season. And then I'm going to take a break and finish my book. And I'll come back with season two in the fall. Our theme song, Mother Mother by Tracy Bonham, is performed by the amazing Jocelyn McKenzie with Harry Bowles. Bye. Mother, mother, can you hear me? Sure, I'm sober. Sure, I'm sane. Life is perfect. Never better. Still your daughter. Still the same. If I tell you what you want.